0: Oh my god, I don't know what I'm going to do. I've been waffling for the last 20 minutes and I don't think I can use any of this. (laughs) Honest Andy's Discount Moon Show! Hello and welcome to Honest Andy's Discount Moon Show, the one-stop shop for all things moon-related on this episode, which is recorded on the 13th of April 2021, we're going to be talking about evidence of Theia, the protoplanet that the moon may have formed from, has arisen, so we're going to talk about that. Ocean currents on Saturn's moon of Enceladus. A new mission proposal from NASA that will go to Jupiter's moon of Io. We're going to shuffle things around and talk about the next moon is, which is the Jovian moon Himalia, and if there's time we'll talk about the occultion of Hiiaka, a TNO or trans-Neptunian object, and hopefully we'll get to some prime moonisters questions. And here on the show with me as always is my co-host Rick who is going to ask the everyman questions about the moons. How are you doing Rick?
1: I'm alright, Andy. How are you?
0: I'm doing swell, thank you. The pubs are open and the sun (laughs) is shining.
1: Uh, Yes, I've been avoiding the pubs, but I have gone out in the sun.
0: Yeah, I did the same. I walked past the pubs with my mask on, fully expecting to do some judging and tutting, but everyone was behaving. There was no one uh, spilling out over tables and being leery. Everyone looked like they were following the rules, because I think everyone is so sick of lockdown. They're like, I can't go back to it. This is a taste of freedom, and I don't want to mess it up.
1: Yeah, I've walked past all of one pub, so uh, I think that's statistically significant. (laughs) Um... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> and there was four blokes on a bench and they were all facing the road for some reason uh, so that's <laughs> okay. they weren't even facing each other they were sort of I, I think they were watching for someone well done them for just facing or, or two of them just completely facing away from uh, the the other people that gone to the pub <laughs>
0: <laughs> maybe they were just showing off the backs of their lockdown haircuts
1: Yeah, it could be that. Or Trev and Bob went for a drink and then Steve and Dave found out about it. So Trev and Bob just turned around and said, look, we'll just ignore them.
0: (laughs) Pretend you don't know them. But other than going outside and quietly judging people, what have you been up to, Rick?
1: Well, this month I have, and you won't believe this, I've completed the cooperative game on Portal 2.
0: Way. Would you believe that? <laughs> uh, I do because I was the person you cooperatively completed it with. Oh yeah, of course. Cool. <laughs>
1: This is where I say, no, no, actually I did it first with someone else, and you feel betrayed.
0: Oh, heavens.
1: (laughs) How could you have a Portal 2 affair with someone else? No, no, it was you, Andy, yes, last, what was it, last Sunday? We finally got round to uh, firing the lasers in the right direction and uh, putting boxes where boxes should go and uh, jumping at speed into magical portals and finally completed Portal 2.
0: Yes, 15 years after it came out. (laughs) I think. Yes. When did it come out, 2005 or Portal 2? 2011, so nine years after it came out.
1: Yeah, perfect. Admittedly, yeah, we we haven't been trying for nine years. We started a few, I don't know, a month or so ago, played it on and off.
0: Uh, It's certainly been spread over a while, mostly because the weekends are when I can really focus on getting videos done. So considering a video has just been put out, I thought I'll take it easy this weekend and just do a bit of podcast research instead.
1: I thought you were going to say, take it easy and and think in three-dimensional puzzle world. (laughs) (laughs) Because for those of you who don't know Portal 2, it's like a three-dimensional puzzle. You've got two people who can fire portals at walls and that connects up two bits of three-dimensional space. So you can do funky stuff like jumping into one portal and the momentum will save as you jump out of another one. So you can do gravity jumps and all sorts of other things. And then they introduce like, firing laser bridges through the portal so you can send laser bridges off uh, everywhere. And what was the other one? You, oh, you can throw paint at stuff on the, yeah, <laughs> this one. The, yeah. the, the paint is good. Uh, which, which That took us a while, that laser bridge. Paint the laser bridge level. Because we, we did did it but just at the wrong angle oh it so, took uh, ages <laughs> an incredibly simple puzzle it's like, oh hang on if we just swap those two things around we could have done this like 20 minutes ago <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, what's amazing about Portal is the sheer scope for it to kind of go wrong and for you to be able to jump where you shouldn't be able to jump because you have a gravity gun. So the amount of testing they must have put in and the amount of blocks they must have put in to ensure that there is only one way to do this, you cannot deviate from this.
1: Yeah, I don't know how they did that, but uh, well done. Although it's probably less of an artefact of them being very, very clever and us being very, very stupid.
0: (laughs) Um. (laughs) Yeah, there is an element of that to it. (laughs) But it's completed, so now we'll probably start a new game. I might start playing Dead of Winter with you via tabletop simulator, because we're still not allowed indoors, but it would be a good way to do a trial of it, I guess.
1: Uh, yeah, I've reviewed the rules of that so I know what's going on. I have played it before. That's the cooperative zombie apocalypse game where you wander around and then I'm going to say, I'm going to search the police station, then uh, on a roll of dice, a zombie eats you and you're dead.
0: At- kind of like that (laughs) there's a bit more to it than that I remember you telling me when you did play it with like the board game society at your place at work and they were very quite rigid about it and they're quite (laughs) uh, do the calculations for it whereas when I play it with my group of friends there's a character in the game called Sparky who is a retired stunt dog so we send him off to the police station and he'll come back with a shotgun a book on leadership and loads of food and so then we just give the dog all the weapons so he's just this indestructible super dog who could go around shooting zombies with a shotgun despite having no opposable thumbs.
1: Yeah, it's one of those games where you could you could really get into it and I think it works really well if you get into it and you get behind the moral dilemmas of, you know, six people have turned up to your shelter, do you let them in? Whereas if you're with a group of mathematicians who say, well, that's going to cost so much food, uh, no. <laughs> so... They, they just completely ignore the moral perspective and just say, well, no, we, we, I'm not going to achieve my objective if we let them in. Are you? No, 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 no. Okay. Uh, sorry, folks,
0: you're off. <laughs> So the last time we played this, that exact card came up and the Brexit vote was just dominating the media. So we were just mapping all of the slogans onto this, (laughs) like, colony means colony. (laughs) And all these kinds of horrible rhetoric when you have these people trying to get into the colony who need help. And half of us are deliberately being right wing and the others are being left wing for it.
1: Yeah, we had none of that. So, so yes, I have missed out on a, the proper effect of uh, Dead of Winter Although saying that, I have spoken to you and you find it a hard game to win Whereas we won it very, very easily, as I recall We sort <laughs> of op- optimised a route, just like, bing, bing, bing Yeah, we've got all we need, okay, is everyone done? Good Oh, we've won with two rounds to go or something So uh, Well, okay Yeah, fun was had by all because we, we achieved objectives So we must have had fun that, that, I think that was how the logic worked <laughs>
0: Fair enough, but was it a memorable game? No. There you go, then. I
1: I remember playing it and where I was, but beyond that, no.
0: Well, listeners, if you get the chance to play Dead of Winter, do so. And before this turns into the board game recommendation podcast, let's talk about some moons.
1: Oh, yeah, uh, just on that, though, Andy. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, there is a board game (laughs) show. (laughs) There is a board game uh, show called No Pun Included, and uh, so go and watch them. Not now, but (laughs) at some point. But they're going to do uh, something on the moons soon, so I'll I'll keep you updated on that. The crossover moon board game world will continue. And for the regular listeners who know I'm on and off working on a moon board game, I'm wondering if they're going to cover it, because then if they can show me the design of my own board game, that would be great. It would save me designing it. (laughs) It would assume they've gone through a time tunnel or something, (laughs) because I haven't done any work on it in months.
0: We'll get to it. (laughs) Yeah. So, moon news. Well, we're going to talk about news relating to Earth's moon. In this piece of moon news, the title is Remains of Impact that Created the Moon May Lie Deep Within Earth. So, Rick, I've told you the main theory for where Earth's moon came from. Do you remember it?
1: Uh, As my role in the show, no. Where does the moon come from, Andy? Is it aliens?
0: It is not aliens. The leading theory is something called the Giant Impact Hypothesis. In the very early stages of the solar system, I think about a billion years after the sun had formed, you had a very early version of Earth, which was covered in lava, just starting to form, and then it was smacked into by a Mars-sized asteroid called Theia, Now this threw up a load of debris into the orbit around earth from which the moon coalesced and by coalesced i mean it snowballed into effect so bits of rock that were thrown up into space clumped together got bigger and bigger and bigger snowballing into one another getting bigger and bigger and bigger until it became the moon millions of years pass the moon cools down the earth cools down we have a nice stable orbit so that's a very very brief overview of where the moon came from now Scientists have proposed a theory that the remnants of Theia, so bits of this giant protoplanet that smacked into the early version of Earth, Theia, bits of Theia are resting beneath the surface of Earth. So you know you've got, like, you take a slice of Earth, In the middle, you've got the core, and right at the surface, you've got the crust. And between those two, you have the mantle. I think there's like an upper mantle and a lower mantle, which is mostly rock. Okay.
1: Yeah. So are you saying there's a moon wedged in there?
0: Not a moon, but an old giant asteroid where the moon came from. And it's not confirmed yet. And it's not just one part, it's two blobs. Two huge blobs which sit below West Africa and the Pacific Ocean. And the way that this article describes it as they straddle the core like a pair of headphones. So imagine you've got the core and a pair of headphones over it. Those headphones, those blobs, are the remnants of Theia, and they are a thousand kilometers tall and several thousand kilometers wide, and they're the largest things inside the Earth's mantle. And the thing is, these blobs, they know they're there because they are of a different density, they're made up of different material compared to the rest of the Earth's mantle, and they know this because they've measured how the waves from earthquakes or seismic waves, how they travel through these Blobs. In fact, the technical name for these blobs are large low shear velocity provinces, or <laughs> LLSVPs. So, I think we'll just refer to them as blobs from from this point on. Right. That rolls off the tongue a little better. Yeah. So these two blobs exist within Earth. They're definitely there. They've been detected. They know they're there. They know they're of a different density. So, are these blobs fair? are they made of Theia? Well, they could be and they couldn't be. One theory is that they simply crystallise out of the depths of Earth's primordial magma ocean, which basically means leftovers from the early Earth. Another theory is that they are puddles of primitive mantle rock that survived the trauma of the moon-forming impact, so the material that was already on Earth, but when Theia smacked into Earth, it just kind of crystallised it due to this very high energy impact. Or the last theory, which is what has been proposed in this paper, is that these blobs are material from Theia. It's alien material within Earth. I say alien as in not of Earth. Not, don't, no, take off the tinfoil hat, Rick. Take off the tinfoil hat. Never. (laughs) Okay, so are there any questions so far?
1: Do you expect people to record that bit and then say, right, so there's two alien bases underneath the Earth?
0: (laughs) Ah...
1: So we know they're there, there's two big blobs there, and we know, or we think we know, the moon formed from an impact of uh, a big rock called Theia. How do we marry those two up? Can we just dig down and like, dig up a sample or something?
0: Well, we don't need to dig down, thankfully, because volcanoes do that for us. They bring up magma from the earth. Evidence from Iceland and Samoa suggest that the blobs have existed since the time of the moon forming impact. And I know you're thinking, Iceland Iceland is not in West Africa. Uh, Yes,
1: (laughs) unless they've opened a branch there.
0: Ah, ba
1: dumch. International listeners might want to know that Iceland is also the name of a supermarket brand in the UK.
0: Uh, I, I just double checked because I forgot where Samoa was. Samoa's in Oceania, so that's not in the Pacific either, I don't think. Well, that's nearby. Kinda nearby. Uh... So the last half an hour of audio has been pretty much completely scrapped because I've been trying to explain how they are calculating or putting forward that the stuff coming out of these volcanoes from these blobs beneath West Africa and the Pacific are indeed from Thayer. And it involves looking at the samples taken back from the moon, comparing it to earth rock, looking at the ratio between hydrogen and deuterium and modelling what will happen during this earth Theia collision, and obviously the cores are going to merge. I say obviously, I've read this a thousand times, that's why it's obvious to me. The cores between Earth and Theia merged, but what happened to the mantle? That was one of the big questions that I was trying to answer and butchered so horrendously, but during this modelling, what happened to Earth's mantle and Theia's mantle? Did... They mix together in this nice homogenous thing? Well no they didn't because there's a blob beneath Africa and there's a blob in the West Pacific. Did some of this stuff survive and if so did it eventually fall into the core? Well no it didn't because those blobs are there. So at what density do these big blobs remain separate from the Earth's mantle and distinct measurable blobs of Thayer beneath the Earth? What density of Thayer's mantle would allow this? Well doing some other calculations of, oh, well, if the moon is made of this material, then Theia must also be made of this material. And then doing some reverse engineering further and going like, well, if the impact was this big and the mantle had to sink this far, therefore Thayer has to contain this much hydrogen. And all this swamp of maths... I horrendously butchered in the explanation so please look at the link in the show notes for a better explanation because I don't want to just sit here and read someone else's work to you that defeats the whole point of the podcast this is kind of like meant to be a discussion slash frivolous conversation and it suddenly turned into a lecture that Andy is butchering
1: I think there's an existential crisis going on here. Um, Oh, I'm
0: the self-appointed moon expert, and I know... Cool.
1: Well, I think you know all your topic and your subject matter. Being able to explain advanced science within five minutes in a podcast is quite a tricky thing.
0: This is exactly what imposter syndrome is, by the way. It's not, oh, I don't think I belong here. That's kind of like a misconception. Imposter syndrome is when you start learning a topic, become smarter than the average person on that topic, and then realise, oh, I know absolutely nothing about this topic because the wealth of information that is out there.
1: Ah, well, you've overcome the dunning cruise. Kruger effect, or whatever it is.
0: What's the Kruger effect?
1: A Dunning-Kruger effect is, like, people are very, very confident when they find get into a new domain of knowledge, because they don't realise how complex it is, and then as you uh, increase in your knowledge, your your confidence goes down, and then gradually it goes up as you realise you're getting on top of this domain. Oh
0: my god, I even butchered imposter syndrome! (laughs) Like, that's it! (laughs) Oh, right. <laughs> in summary, Thayer might be beneath the Earth because there's blobs beneath Africa and the Pacific. Done. Cool. All right, on to foreign moon news. And I think I understand this one. The ocean currents predicted on Saturn's moon of Enceladus. It has a subsurface ocean. That subsurface ocean could indeed have currents. Currents as in ocean currents, not the raisin-like healthy snack. ba so do you know of Enceladus Rick? Do you know what I, what this moon looks like?
1: Uh, I think you may have mentioned it previously, but uh, to be honest, all the moons merge into one after a while uh, on on Honest Andy's Discount Moon show, so you might have to (laughs) remind me. Was this the icy moon that looks really nice and is like the model moon? Like, if you had a pin-up moon, then it's a very beautiful moon.
0: Yeah, it falls into the, whoa, science is so cool, man, kind of poster moon, because Enceladus has these plumes or cryovolcanoes. A cryovolcano, instead of spewing up lava, it spews up ice and saline kind of water from beneath the subsurface ocean. So it's an ice volcano instead of a lava volcano. There's a few of them on the surface of Enceladus on its south pole. And they're these long, they're called fissures, but they're just basically long canyons across the surface of Enceladus called tiger stripes. And it's an incredible looking moon and the photos and the footage taken by Cassini of ice spewing out of these tiger stripes is really quite striking. Now, the subsurface ocean of Enceladus is really quite different from Earth's oceans. So, relatively speaking, Earth's ocean is quite shallow with an average depth of just shy of four kilometers. Obviously, it gets deeper in the likes of the Mariner's Trench, but our ocean covers three quarters of the surface of the planet, average depth of four kilometers-ish, is warmer at the top because the sun is beaming down on it and it's colder at the depths because it's on the ocean floor and the sun's light can't penetrate that far and the earth's ocean it has currents that are mostly generated by the wind caused by our atmosphere. Now Enceladus is almost the complete opposite of this. Instead of Having an ocean on the surface, it's just an entire ice ball. So the ocean is beneath the surface. It's at least 30 kilometers deep. It's cooled at the top because of the icy shell caused by freezing in space. And it's actually warmer at the bottom because of the heat from the moon's core. So it is almost the polar opposite of Earth's ocean. But despite this, currents could exist inside this subsurface ocean. And they've discovered this by looking at... How the oceans interact around Antarctica, and looking at how the temperature will affect the freezing and thawing of the water, but more importantly, of the salty water, because the water in Enceladus is salty, and we know this because when Cassini flew past it, I think it had a spectrometer on it, so it was able to detect salty material coming out of the plumes of Enceladus. So, we know this water is salty. And how do we know that there are currents in the subsurface ocean? We can't see in there, but what we can do is look at how thick the ice is across the surface of Enceladus. Is it the same thickness throughout? It's roughly similar, but it's thinner at the pole and thicker at the equator.
1: How do we know that? If we measure ice, don't we like go down with a, you know, one of those ice cores and bang it in? And then, you know like ice fishing? I'm imagining someone on Enceladus doing that. (laughs) Has someone gone to do that? I don't think they have, because we haven't landed on Mars yet. That would be a bit odd if we've skipped Mars and loads of other places and gone ice fishing on Enceladus.
0: Um, Well, while we haven't landed on Enceladus, we have landed on asteroids, comets and Mars with probes. Ah, right, yeah. And we've drilled into them. So you you could drill into the surface. Not as deep to get through that to the subsurface ocean, though. Uh, The way that they've figured out how thick the ice is is through gravitational measurements and heat calculations. Heat calculations being a heat map taken by Cassini as it flew past it. So it kind of like a big blanket term would just be radar but lots of different science in the radar it's not just radio bouncing back and radio and radar echoes no it's like a whole wealth of science has has been taken as Cassini flew by Enceladus so it knows the ice is thicker at the equator and thinner at the poles so this means that ice is freezing more at the equator than it is at the poles well that makes sense so what is driving this what is causing the ice to melt at the poles and freeze at the equator. Well, the obvious thing would be, well, you've got this cryovolcano, right? It's spewing out ice and water on the South Pole. And that is indeed caused by internal pressure generated by heat. But there's gotta be more to it than just that because it's also thinner at the North Pole where there are no cryovolcanoes compared to the South where there are cryovolcanoes. And one of the theories is when salty water freezes, it releases the salt into the water around it causing that water to get heavier and therefore sink. So if you have sinking water, you have a flow of water. And what is a flow of water? It's a current. So you have currents of water. Yep. (laughs) yep. (laughs) And they've done this by looking at how salty water freezes and thaws around Antarctica and have studied the ocean currents around Antarctica and where one ocean begins, another ends, and how that flow of salty water turns into ice. And this has been predicted to create a pole-to-equator circulation that will distribute heat on Enceladus, so it's like a negative feedback loop. So if it's freezing more at the poles, then the water's going to sink into the core, and it's going to rise up to the poles where it's thinner, because that's going to drive heat towards the poles, which is where the cryovolcanoes are.
1: Excellent. Ta da! So, so uh, does what does a current mean in terms of science? Does it mean there's going to be life on that planet? Fish?
0: Well, there's always been theorized that wherever there's liquid water, there should be life it allows for a distribution of nutrients so if you just have this homogeneous, very still puddle that it's going to be hard for life to form but if you have a flow of water it allows for a distribution of warmth and nutrients where it'll be hotter where it'll be colder it allows variety the more variety a ecosystem a habitat a place i don't know has the more likely It is for life to evolve. So even though there are no signs of life yet, the conditions for hospitable life are there.
1: No signs of life. So there's no sign saying no fishing. (laughs) Which means I'm going to go fishing on Enceladus before they ban it and catch one of these rare fish that might exist. In the newly found currents.
0: You'll need a license from the post office first, though. <laughs>
1: okay, cool. I'll go and get one. So there's currents in Enceladus, potentially.
0: This is this is theoretical at the moment, but it's been published in a paper in uh, Science Daily?
1: Currents Monthly. <laughs> They've ran out of razor news. <laughs>
0: And in more foreign moon news, there has been a proposed mission to the volcanic moon of Jupiter called Io. So bear in mind this is a proposed mission. It hasn't got funding. It isn't the full go-ahead yet because there's a lot of proposed missions to Jupiter and I think this one is still in the early stages but the mission is called EVO which stands for IO Volcano Observer and it would be a flyby mission. So you'd send this little satellite off to Io where it wouldn't land on the surface because it's a volcano planet and it might land next to something that explodes, what it will do instead is do multiple flybys of Io 10 in total over the course of four years so when it does a flyby it'll get really really close to the surface in this case they're suggesting that it'll get about 200 kilometers above the moon during which it'll measure the atmosphere of Io it will measure what is in its upper atmosphere what is being kicked out of the volcanoes it'll measure the heat distribution it'll take photos and videos and it's going to try and map the whole surface and it's the plans are to map 90% of Io's surface down to a resolution of 300 metres per pixel. And while that doesn't sound that much, considering that this is one of the largest moons in the solar system, about the size of our own moon, 300 metres per pixel is pretty damn good.
1: And it's miles away as well. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Even just getting something to it near enough. That would take a bit of effort. I
0: think it takes about five years to get to Jupiter, I believe. That's if the the planets align and you have the correct gravitational slingshots. That's why uh, Voyager was kind of launched when it was, because it had a perfect gravity slingshot to get it out to the depths of the solar system and beyond. It's gone beyond the solar system now.
1: Yeah, you don't want to be a scientist at the beginning of the mission that fires it in slightly the wrong way. You know, like a darts player occasionally just misses the treble 20 and hits the treble 1. I mean, that's bad, (laughs) darts, but in a a sort of... galactic perspective if you're out by that much of an angle at the beginning you, you're screwed
0: well I am um, used to play the cornets the trumpet when I was a, a kid in high school and I, I always remember my trumpet teacher telling me this because my technique was terrible I was just like I just want to play this song I just want to learn this it's like no you can't you, you got to get your technique correct because your technique is bad now and you learn songs you'll never correct it, and it'll take you absolutely ages to learn the technique properly, to get better at it. You'll always be stuck at a certain level, and he used the analogy of a flight across the ocean. If you start the flight off one degree off the course you're supposed to, and you discover 2% into the journey, okay, 1% off, no big deal, we can course correct that very easily. but three quarters of the way into the journey and that one percent is now miles and miles off course and it's going to take absolutely ages to get back on course again
1: yeah it requires a bit of accuracy the uh throwing the old satellite at a planet
0: moon astrodynamics has some of the most disgusting off-putting maths i have ever encountered and i do not wish to learn it
1: once worked in an office with the space department and they did this but what they did was say i've got a satellite here that's going to be launched within these months months and I want it over there by this time, and then just set the computer off, working it out. (laughs) It was was easier to do it that way.
0: Well, yes, that is easiest (laughs) to do it that way, but you you need to program that computer. (laughs) It's not like booting up Microsoft Word and go, Clippy, I've got this spacecraft. (laughs) I want it to get to Pluto's outer moon of Hydra. How do I get there? Yeah, as long as someone else has
1: programmed it, you're fine.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Says the person who has made that own computer language because the others weren't good enough. (laughs) Yeah
1: quite right. (laughs) Get some other idiot like me to program it. But yeah so having worked with people who actually had to plan routes I was sort of asking them well how do you do it because there's all sorts of planets going on and uh, stuff and they said well you get a broad idea and then you just give it to the computer and it finesses it. So so, uh, yeah someone somewhere has programmed this computer Presumably correctly. So if you, I don't know, you pay your 50 quid to global satellite launch planner app or whatever it is, then uh, you too can plan uh, intergalactic space launches.
0: Uh, Yes. (laughs) Although computer predictions of stars and moons and positioning and all that will come into play in the next story...
1: Yeah, so to summarise, uh, we are planning to go to uh, Io. Or <laughs> well, we're not, sorry. <laughs> so to summarise, <laughs> the volcanic moon of Io, and it's going to be a flyby mission, uh, so they're not going to land on it because it's too volcanic and dangerous. Yes. And that is called Evo, which I'm pretty sure was a character in Warly.
0: Yes! I was. T- <laughs> I I could hear the cogs in your brain working. Um, I don't think it's Evo though. I think it's Eva. Ah, right. Okay. But yes, I was think Evo and Eva as well while reading this. So yeah, you you were spot on with that.
1: I won't get too emotionally attached then, as it <laughs> crashes and burns into Jupiter and or any of the other moons in the area.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, that would be a Pixar films tend to make you cry, but that one would be quite tragic. Okay, Rick, we're going to mix things up a bit. We are going to do And the Next Moon Is in the middle of foreign moon news. And there's a reason for this, which will be revealed in good time. So our feature of And the Next Moon Is is covering all the moons of the solar system. Started with the moons of Mars. We've done only a quarter of the moons of Jupiter so far. And we're on to a moon called Himalaya. Now, Himalaya is the 13th outermost moon of Jupiter. You might recognize the name Himalaya because we've been talking about the Himalaya group, which indeed Himalaya belongs to, and it's called the Himalaya group because the moon of Himalaya is the largest moon in that group. Himalia orbits Jupiter at 11.5 million kilometres away, and it takes 250 Earth days to complete just one orbit around Jupiter. Now what I find really fascinating about this moon is that it was discovered in 1904, so 115 years ago. This tiny moon, estimated to be about 150 kilometres across, was discovered by telescope, and it was the 23rd moon to ever have been discovered.
1: That's some pretty good astronomy there. Yeah. Uh, which, which observatory was it discovered at?
0: The Lick Observatory, which is in California, I believe.
1: Oh, right. Do they lick the telescope there?
0: Just to <laughs> sort,
1: sort, of, sort of taste space. And...
0: <laughs> Ooh, taste dusty. Yeah. The Lick Observatory will have been named after some family. <laughs> James Lick.
1: Oh, he invented um, rubbing things with your tongue to get their taste. <laughs>
0: Up until then, people have just been shoving it up their nose. Yeah, (laughs) snorting their uh, beef steak. Uh, Anyway, this moon was discovered in 1904, and it was the sixth moon of Jupiter ever to be discovered. So I forget the one that was discovered before it. One second. So we've talked about the Galilean moons, which were discovered in the 1600s by Galileo. The next moon to be discovered was in 1892, called Amalthea, which we've actually covered on this. Uh, I'll link to the episode and the timestamp of which we covered it
1: now. That was the third moon out from
0: Jupiter. Ah, you're looking at the Wikipedia article as well.
1: I'm looking at my moon list. Ah, oh, nice. So, so, so I quickly add <laughs> add a moon for each list we've done so you, so I can catch you out if you ever do a moon twice or something. Ah,
0: good, 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 good. Keeping me honest. Uh, well, the next moon discovered was Himalaya, so the sixth moon of Jupiter to be discovered. The 23rd moon to have been discovered ever in 1904 by someone called... Charles Perrine, P-E-R-R-I-N-E, Perrine, Perrine? How would you say that?
1: Yeah, Perrine.
0: Perrine. He was born in America, so I don't think it would have been a French pronunciation. Charles Perrine, he discovered Himalaya using just observation techniques by just looking at a bright object in his telescope, moving across the sky and plotting its position and go, well, that's not a planet, that's orbiting a planet. So having the the foresight and the astronomical knowledge and the astrodynamical knowledge to be able to calculate and figure out that this is a moon 115 years ago, without use of computers, is genuinely quite incredible.
1: Yeah, I could probably not even do it even if I had a computer. It's just like lots of dots, white dots on a black background.
0: You could probably figure out that something is a planet. You could probably, if given enough information, figure out, oh, that is a moon because of the way it's moving. But he managed to calculate the orbit
1: yeah, I mean, I think that the key words there is given enough information. Oh, okay. if, I've, if I've got someone explaining it to me, then yeah, I'll be fine. Uh, like, very, very much like the uh, the Discord chat group on moons with N3 pointing out there are the moons in the, the very dotty pictures. It's like, I'm fine when someone points it out. Uh, it's just that bit before it, like N3 has done their work, then it's just a, a fuzzy blob.
0: Absolutely. I don't know how they managed to find them. Uh, I'm still in awe. Uh, speaking of <laughs> N3 on uh, the Moon Discord, N3 forwarded uh, the latest issue of the Journal for Occultation Astronomy. I believe it's pronounced occultation. It's nothing to do with the occult. Do you remember last episode when we talked about occultion season for Jupiter, where all the moons are passing in front of one another and you can... Just witness it if you've got the right time.
1: So it was a cult as in occlusion. So something's occluding something else as opposed to it's a great time to summon Satan.
0: Uh, Yes, exactly. If I'm pronouncing this stuff wrong, uh, please call me out because I'm awful at pronouncing stuff. I'll even mispronounce myself in the same video, which is... And I'm sober in them. That's that's the frustrating thing. We mentioned before that Himalaya was 150 kilometres across. That was based on up-close images taken by Cassini, and they estimate that Himalaya is this. Well, ground-based observations estimate Himalaya is 170 kilometers. And I remember reading this thinking, ground-based? How did they do this from telescopes based on Earth? And then N3 sent in this Journal for occultion Astronomy, which talks about measuring moons and the size of objects as they pass in front of a star, and it blew my mind and opened my eyes to a whole new window of astronomy. Occulsion astronomy. So let's break this down of what is occulsion astronomy? How could it be used to measure the size of things? So it could be assumed that if you're listening to this podcast, you like space. So you might have seen some images cropping up on your various social media feeds for example, when the International Space Station will cross in front of the sun or when Mercury crosses over the sun and you'll see like this time lapse of Mercury as a dot going across the sun. Well, you can use this to measure the size of the objects, both the star and the object crossing in front of it, using something called chords. So what the hell is a chord? <laughs>
1: Presumably not the trousers or the musical uh, term.
0: Correct. It's a term used in mathematics, but there's a whole sub division of it for astronomy. So in the field of astronomy, the term chord typically refers to a line crossing an object which is formed during an occultion event. So far, so good. Y'all are following me with that. By taking accurate measurements of the start and end times of this occultion in conjunction with the known location of the observer and the object's orbit, the length of a chord can be determined given the indication of the size of the occulting object. That was quite wordy. So if you know how big the object is, we know how big the star is, we know how big the sun is, we know how big various different stars are by looking at what is called their magnitude. And from their magnitude, you can reverse engineer how big that star is. So you know how big the object is and you know how bright the object is. And when an object goes in front of it, there is a change in brightness. This is going to be referred to as a light curve, by the way, because there'll be like an average brightness, which will flicker over time. So you want to look at the light curve of an object. So by combining observations made from different locations, on the Earth and multiple chords of the occulting object, you can determine a more accurate shape and size of this. So they've done this for Himalaya in the latest Journal of occultion Astronomy, which was published in February 2021, but it's using data from 2020 and previous months. They have managed to figure out the shape and size of Himalaya based on on its transition of a distant star. And this star doesn't even have a name, I don't think. It's got like um, a stellar category, but I, I couldn't find the name of the star that it occulted. It might be buried in one of the references. By just knowing that this distant moon of Jupiter happens to be crossing a random star and observing how long it took for it to cross in front of that star, you could determine the size of this moon. That blows my mind.
1: That is, yeah, that's amazingly precise. I'm kind of amazed sometimes at spec savers when they say, okay, look off in the distance, and then they put some glasses in front of you and go, oh, is that better or worse? And I can see like 20 metres further, but to do it at this range, that must be some (laughs) sort of lenses, you know? It's like spec savers will kind of get to the thing of, well, okay, so you can see you know, 20 metres further, but you can't read 30 metres, but that's basically the limit of how far we can go Uh, so yes to get that level of accuracy out to umpteen million kilometers is amazing
0: yeah so in in case i had butchered it in summary you look at the star you know the moon is going to cross it as the star starts to dim you kind of click on your stopwatch measure how long the star is dimmed for and then when it gets back to its normal brightness stop the clock and look at how long it took Now we know the speed, how fast Jupiter is going around the sun. We know the speed of how fast we are going. There's all sorts of parameters involved. I'm not gonna get into them. There's lots of parameters involved. This is when the computers come into play because you enter all of the details into the start and finish time of the occultion event and it will pop out a, a chord length. So I'll put up a image on screen now of how they measured the chords for Himalaya. And they took measurements from different locations on earth because Earth is a sphere. There's gonna be telescopes taking measurements higher up and lower down, and considering Himalaya is only 150 kilometers across, and Earth is 3,000 kilometers across, I believe. Maybe more, I think maybe 6,000. Either way, bigger than Himalaya. Where you are on the planet will give you slightly different chord lengths, and you might not even see Himalaya because of the position on Earth. It might be so small that it doesn't pass in front of the star where you are, but if you go lower down, it might pass in front of it, and then you keep going down towards the South Pole, and nope, you don't see the star anymore. Well that gives you a nice range of the shadow Himalaya is casting on Earth. And not only that, and this really blew my mind, the Himalaya chords and the Himalaya occultion event, they took, I think, 20 different chords and they were able to determine a crater on the side of Himalaya. So if you look at the cords, imagine having a biscuit in your hand, like a rich tea round biscuit, taking a bite out of it and holding that biscuit up to the light and then measuring the cords, either side of it, you'll see like a little dip where the bite mark is because you know, an inner edge an outer edge, the crater rims and whatnot. So they've actually managed to detect a crater on Himalaya using this occultion cord measurements i was astonished
1: but yeah that, that's amazing as i said i can't see 30 meters ahead of me
0: so
1: <laughs> <laughs> like, to be able to spot that level of feature at that distance that's uh, amazing and well done to the international community because it's uh, an international effort because everyone's got to be pointing at the same time at the same space exactly yeah it's not something you can do on your own i'm looking at you uh, Who am I going to pick up? Uh, Iceland.
0: Well, these events don't, don't last long. I think they take maybe a minute to go across the continental USA, depending on the position of the star and the position of the planet, of course. And Himalaya has only a dozen or so occultions this year, but they're predicted in the year 2031 to have up to 500 occultions. So this happens on a yearly basis but you just need to kind of like be at the right place at the right time and rally the international community because you can't be doing this every single night because there's so much data out there but the fact that from just a handful of measurements, you can determine a crater on a moon that is dozens of millions of kilometers away is just astounding. Yeah, it's
1: fantastic. And the other thing I learned it was that there's a, a journal for occultation astronomy.
0: Not... <laughs> there's a journal for everything.
1: Yeah. And so I went and looked back at when was the first issue? Oh, it was in... 2010. Uh, But in the sort of tagline, it also says, formerly Occultation Newsletter. So I said, oh, right. When was the first Occultation Newsletter? So, uh, Andy, when do you reckon the first Occultation Newsletter was?
0: I think it will have been maybe in the 70s?
1: Uh, It was, yes. Hey!
0: Have a guess. Uh, Well... Voyager discovered moons of Uranus in the late 70s. So I'm going to say mid-70s in ni- 1975.
1: Uh, completely wrong. It was 1974 oh, in July. What, so what a fool. You, you, you were massively out by five months. <laughs> uh, <so. laughs> and uh, the Occultation newsletter has these objectives, and they're one to six. Can you guess what number six is?
0: You don't talk about Fight Club.
1: Yeah, it's it's to stay out of debt. So,
0: oh, <laughs> so uh, that's quite sweet. <laughs> that,
1: so I hope uh, occultation news community newsletter and journal that you are very much solvent at this time. If you're not, we'll have a fundraiser next
0: next podcast. Yes, I'll give you the three P of ad revenue that the podcasts generate <laughs> on the YouTube channel. Before we move on. Because there is another occultion astronomy story I want to talk about, and I know that I'm quite gushing about this subject, but I only learned about it recently, and I'm genuinely astonished at the accuracy, the maths, the scientific community involved, I'm just kind of overwhelmed by how accurate and how incredible this is technology and this subset of astronomy is, it's opened up a whole new world of measurements and being able to discover things about moons. Like the fact that by measuring the shadow of a moon eclipsing a star, you have discovered a crater on that moon. That is amazing. But anyway, before moving on, what nickname are you going to give Himalia? Uh, I've gone
1: for the Occulted Crater Moon.
0: Ooh, okay. I like that. Occulted Crater Moon. Oh, and as is tradition, I kind of need to talk about the name because... Well, do do we need to talk about the name?
1: Yeah, is it anything to do with the Himalayas? It sounds very similar.
0: Uh... Named after the nymph Himalaya who bore three sons of Zeus. Oh, actually, this is actually worth mentioning, because the moon didn't get its name until 1975, and before then it was simply known as Jupiter 6. But... Because more and more moons were getting discovered, they realised, oh, we can't keep adding numbers to them. We need another convention. So that's when they they came up with the idea of, oh, we'll just keep naming them after gods then.
1: Yeah, because presumably you, you discovered a moon between six and five. That would end up being like seven. So, But then the order, ordering would go wrong.
0: Yeah, exactly, because Miranda was fourth moon of Uranus to be discovered, I think. And it had like an identifier of Uranus Four, but it's not the fourth moon of uranus it's the 13th moon or th- way further out than the fourth position so it adds to confusion so then they just butchered the whole naming convention by naming them after characters who are fairies and then characters from the tempest and then characters from romeo and juliet and it's just a whole mess which <laughs> I, I will make a video about at one point but yes that's everything you need to know about Himalia so we've been gushing about stellar occultion and occultion astronomy well you can take part in it because a very rare event is going to be happening on the 16th of April and I do intend to get this podcast out by then at least the audio the video might not come out until the weekend but I'm hoping to get the episode chopped and sent out by then so
1: <laughs> so does that mean dear listener you basically have to look up now if you want to see the occulting event <laughs> if literally run box... to the window or you'll miss it
0: yeah. <laughs> oh step one be in America <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> so if you're an American listener and your observatory is open and you happen to be in the right side of the country, you might witness a very rare event, which is the stellar occultion of a TNO. What is a TNO? TNO stands for Trans-Neptunian Object. So dwarf planets, asteroids that are beyond the orbit of Neptune. So Pluto would count as a TNO. Eris, Make Makemake, or Maki-Maki, forget how that one is pronounced. All those count as TNOs, Trans-Neptunian Objects. Now, I made a video about a particular dwarf planet called Halmea, which is a big pebble-shaped object, and it has two moons, Hiiaka and Namaka. They are named after gods from Hawaiian mythos, and the moon of Halmea, Hiiaka, will be occulting a star the evening of the 15th into the 16th of April, and it will be occulting a star, casting a shadow across continental USA. Now it's not going to eclipse the whole of the USA, it's going to eclipse and cast a shadow starting in Georgia and working its way in a northwesterly direction across the country all the way up to Oregon, and this shadow will move across the country and take two and a half minutes and then it'll be in the Pacific Ocean and the occultion will be over. So, have you seen the maps that I've put in the show notes? And I'll include images and links to them in the show notes here, and they'll be on the YouTube screen now. So, can you see the one of the globe? Yep, yep. So, that big shadow is when the main occultion is going to happen, and it'll be witnessed in Georgia. And each subsequent dot is a minute later. So, that's how fast it covers the USA. So... A dot later, it's about a third of the way through the country. A dot later, it's just entering Oregon. And the next dot, it's completely gone, and it is in the Pacific Ocean. So that's how quick these events happen. I should point out, Hiiaka is a moon of a dwarf planet called Haumea. Now, the distance from Haumea to Earth is seven and a half billion kilometers. For context, from the distance from the Earth to the Moon is 380,000 kilometres, the distance from the Earth to the Sun is 150 million kilometres, and the distance from Earth to Pluto is just over 5 billion kilometres. So Haumea is a long way away, Hiiaka is a long way away, and it takes light, light travelling at the speed of light, 300 million metres a second, It takes light six hours, 50 minutes to get from Hi'iaka to Earth. So you need to account for how long it takes (laughs) for light to travel from this dwarf planet to Earth. That is incredible.
1: Oh, yeah. You want to hope someone's done their maths correctly otherwise <laughs> like you go out to pixel perfect with this you've only got one minute to see it and it's like oh no sorry six hours late
0: I left the lens cap on
1: yeah oh I've left the lens cap on oh, it's all right I've got six hours to take it off because the light is yet to reach us
0: I'll, by the way I'll post a link to the occultion site because that has all the precise data that you need to plug into your telescope hooked up to a computer because there's no way you'd be able to do this by hand <laughs> so it's got all the data you need to plug into the computer to be able to see this it you lists all of the time in something called UTC, which is Universal Time Central. It completely disregards daylight savings, because that varies on a state-to-state basis.
1: Yeah, (laughs) you really don't want to add that into the mix. I think there's enough timing problems with light leaving this location will take six hours, but in which time the Earth has moved and rotated. So yeah, there's a bit going on in the calculations. You don't want to have the additional, oh yeah, by the way, the government says it's an hour later because, you know... (laughs) (laughs) Farmers up north don't like it when it's dark.
0: Someone tell Hamea. Again, I know I'm getting overexcited about this, but it is just incredible. To know when a moon is occulting a star and being able to witness the shadow of it traverse a continent and being able to be in the right place at the right time to look at it and witness it. Who knows, they might get some more measurements out of this and we'll be able to have more precise... Measurements about Hiiaka because do you know how it was discovered?
1: No, someone looking through a telescope.
0: <laughs> kind of, it was discovered using the Hubble telescope.
1: Oh right, okay. So that's someone looked through the Hubble telescope and
0: Mike Brown, the guy who discovered Eris, which resulted in Pluto's demotion to dwarf planet. He discovered Haumea, and while observing Haumea, they noticed moons orbiting it as well. So he discovered the dwarf planet, as well as the moons, using the Hubble telescope.
1: Excellent. I'm a bit annoyed now. I couldn't get time on it. The telescope. <laughs> I could be discovering things.
0: So, if you're in America and happen to catch this at the right time, please get in contact with your local observatory and try <laughs> and watch Hi'iaka, Occulting a Star, and... Future Andy, try and get this podcast out before the event happens. And now let's do some Prime Ministers questions. Order! And I'm gonna crack open a beer. So, the question that we have comes from Shortstack1851 on Twitter. He's got a Prime Ministers question and it kind of comes in three parts. So question number one, does the moon rotate on its axis? And yes, it does rotate on its axis. And I know that does sound a little confusing because you might be thinking, well, hang on a minute. I thought the same face of the moon always faces earth. And it does. The moon is tidally locked. But if you remember, the moon takes 28 days to complete an orbit around the Earth. So as it does that, the same side is always going to be facing Earth. Therefore, it must rotate once in that 28 days. Otherwise, we'd see the back of the moon as it didn't rotate if it just remained static. Do you get what I mean? Uh,
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Good, good, good. I haven't even had Uh, a sip yet.
1: Yeah, you've got to put yourself at the position of a sort of... Someone who's uh, looking in at Earth going around the sun.
0: Yes, uh, external reference point, I believe, is the term. So I'm holding up the can of beer in front of me, and I'm spinning on my chair and the same side is facing me because I'm, I'm rotating the moon, but if you were standing at the doorway, confused at what I'm doing, you would see the can rotate from your point of view. So the moon is rotating, but that rotation just happens to be the time it takes to complete one orbit around the Earth. So the moon does rotate on its axis. Now the second question, water has been discovered on the moon, but it has been found in areas of perpetual shadow. Is this correct? Yes it is. Apart from the recent discovery, which were in direct sunlight, the vast majority of the water on the Moon that has been discovered so far has been in areas of perpetual shadow. So it's been in the craters that don't see any sunlight. So the main question is therefore, if the Moon rotates on its axis and orbits the Earth, and therefore the sun, how do these areas of shadow not encounter some form of light or reflected light throughout its rotation? So, at some point in that orbit, it must encounter some sunlight, right? And that's a very good question. You would think, given how big the sun is, you've got all these different angles from which light could illuminate the surface, Why hasn't it done that? That's a good question, and the reason being is because it's a very precise area of the moon. That is in perpetual shadow, and that is right at the base of the rims of the crater. And the craters are so deep, and the walls of the crater are so high, that light just will never, ever go into them. So imagine if, you know those big um, farming silos, the big tubes that they keep hay in?
1: Uh, yeah, do you mean grain?
0: I thought they kept hay in them as well. Okay, uh, grain. I think
1: those, those are barns. <laughs> <laughs> so
0: yeah, cool. That that works for me. If you were to put one of those on, say, like the North or South Pole or way, way up in Greenland or way on the south of uh, South Africa, chances are, given the position of those silos on the Earth and the angle of the sun, even though the earth is rotating on its axis, chances are you might not see direct sunlight. You'll see daylight if you look up, but you won't feel the warmth of the sun's rays on you because sunlight won't go in the silo. And this is assuming that the silo is tall enough, of course, and other factors like that. So it's because the water is trapped in ice in the base of the crater rims. Do you know there's ice on mercury?
1: Um, no. How's that? How's that? Yeah, that's pretty close.
0: <laughs> For exactly the same reason. It also helps that even though it's so close to the sun, it doesn't have an atmosphere to retain any heat. So when it's in the shadow, away from the sun, it's just exposed to the cold vacuum of space, and therefore it's bloody cold. Yeah. <laughs> and Mercury is covered in craters, and so it has some that are deep enough to house ice which will have come from comets that have smacked into the surface and created the crater which now houses the water slash ice
1: oh that's good so that's how there's ice on the moon
0: yes just through sheer luck being in the right place at the right time so
1: yeah you've got to be in a deep hole and at the pole
0: <laughs> yes <laughs> There's the handy rhyme for Where is the <laughs> Where water is on the moon? You've got to be at the poles, and then you've got to be in the holes. Ba-dum-t. Right, any
1: any royalties go to me.
0: <laughs> I think it was a joint writing effort. Lyricist Rick Val. There will be no more Honest Handies This Camp Moon show dispute over lyric royalties. <laughs> <laughs> So, do you have any other questions off the back of that, or shall we wrap up Prime Minister's questions, and therefore the podcast?
1: Yeah, that all makes sense, so no more questions.
0: Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for listening so far. If you like what you've heard, and have a Prime Minister's question that you want answered as well, please get in touch with the show, either on Twitter, where the handle is at Iamalunatic or send me an email via Gmail, which is the same handle, imalunatic at gmail.com. I've also just started an Instagram where I'll be posting one or two moon-related facts and hopefully some videos soon, so follow me there at Iamalunatic as well on Instagram. I'm on all the socials now. Thank you very much for listening, and tune in next time. Bye-bye. Honest Andy's Discount Moon Show! Hello, future Andy here. Just finished editing the podcast at quarter past eight on the 15th of April, so that means it'll be out in time before the occultion of Hi'iaka. Yes!